Welcome back. Thanks for being here today. Uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. We are looking at uh, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 this morning. And if you don't have a paper Bible, uh, there should be one under a seat there in front of you. And I think it's maybe page 6 or 7. It can't be too far in uh, to the Bible. Uh, if you're new to the Bible or if you're new to church, this is uh, the part of our weekly gathering where we consider a focal passage of Scripture and we just kind of teach through that verse by verse, word by word, line by line, and we try to make sense of that, uh, that focal passage and, uh, and see how it connects with the overall redemptive message of Scripture. And, uh, and so this morning's passage is Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8. This is a series that we're going through this summer in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 called Foundations. And uh, I thought we'd be further along by now, but, uh, but I, um, and, and I did it again today. I, my, my goal was to get through all of chapter 6 today, and, uh, and I'm only going to get through verses uh, 1 through 8. Uh, and so we'll just extend this into the fall and, and see how it goes. Uh, as you're turning there as well, uh, let me just kind of set up the context of today's passage. Uh, last week, the passage was in Genesis chapter 5. And in Genesis chapter 5, we contrasted the godly line of Seth with chapter 4, which was the ungodly line of Cain. Right? Do you remember Cain killed his brother Abel, and then Seth replaced uh, Abel, and so in Scripture, Genesis 4 and 5, they contrast those two lines of uh, uh, the genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth. And in contrast to the ungodly evil line of Cain, last week we read about Seth, and the predominant feature of the Seth line was that they uh, they feared God. At that time, men began to proclaim and call upon the name of the Lord, and they began to gather together and worship. Uh, and so that was one of their uh, features of the Seth line. Uh, but our passage today is going to show that the number of people who feared God uh, was dwindling. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to the end of our chapter next week, you will only find eight righteous people in all the earth. Things quickly devolve into a wicked, demonic, violent, evil, worldwide population in just our few verses that we're considering today. Let me uh, give you a few things to remember as we come to this text. We're really only 1,600 years removed from all of creation at this point. Genesis 1-5 through 5 covers a period of about 1,600 years of humanity. The population is estimated at this time worldwide to be as little as 750 million or as much as 4 billion or more. Where do I get that? Uh, one commentator notes that if the growth rate in the pre-flood world was equal to the growth rate in 2000, which was 0.012, there could have been about 750 million people at the time of the flood. However, given the extremely long lifespans prior to the flood, and, and you remember we talked about the, the environment and the oxygen-rich environment and the, the um, water canopy above, and the, uh, all the environment was set up to produce long, long life. And so if you consider that, and these longer lifespans prior to the flood, the growth rate could have been much higher. 
if we increase the growth rate, the birth rate, by just 0.001%, that would put the population at close to 4 billion. I've read a number of other sources that say it was as many as 15 billion people. And if you think about uh, after the flood, um, all these sort of drainage places in the earth where we get fossil fuels, right? What do fossil fuels come from? Come from fossils, right? It's decomposed organic material. Uh, and so if we had a billion uh, or more population, um, you know, I think about that every time I put gas in my car, right? It's just one of my ancestors. Oh, it's kind of dark, sorry. Um, but we see that there's an incredibly populous earth at that time. Much more than just a handful of people. Uh, this is also before the Tower of Babel, and so all the world shared one language. Uh, all of the population were all united, mostly against God. And the godly remnant had shrunk down to just eight people, Noah and his family. Before we get into the text, I just have a quick confession to make. Uh, and that is that I would really rather not preach uh, this this message or this this passage. Uh, I remember listening to a sermon uh, by John MacArthur on this passage from 2001. Uh, he preached in 2001, and he talked about how in a, their meeting of their elders, they one of the men had a migraine and talked about how terrible it was and how his head was pounding and he had to leave. And they talked about migraines, and he started that sermon saying, "I would rather have that kind of a migraine than preach this passage." And I can tell you that this week I've spent over 30 hours or more uh, consuming theological material, commentaries, audiobooks, passages on my four-day drive back and forth to Oklahoma and, and otherwise. I, uh, this is a hard passage. Number one, why do I feel like it's, would I rather not preach this passage? This is labeled as the most challenging passage in the book of Genesis uh, by most commentators. There's a real challenge to get this passage right. And, and I'm just going to confess at the outset that a lot of what I'm going to say, we have to kind of fill in the gaps. And so not everything I say today, uh, you should weigh it out and test it and, and trust that I'm going to try to not give us an overly sensational view, but I'm also not going to try to strip the supernatural out of it. I'm going to try to present the text and that's led to some real, real uh, challenges for me this week. Uh, I have grieved over this passage, labored over it, uh, and it, is, it has taken a lot out of me to get to this point. So I'd rather, just, I'd rather just say amen and walk away right now before I ever start. I'm just confessing that to you. Nobody wants to listen to a sermon after an introduction like that, by the way. I don't want to preach it. You don't want to hear it. Let's just move on, but, um, but we can't do that. It's challenging also because there's a bit of mystery in this passage that can lead to some unhealthy speculation. And it has. Uh, it has as well. But it's also difficult for us to take a passage like this and to see the practical value, right? It's hard to really make gospel application. Uh, we, we get to the bottom line of this text and we can see that demons procreated with women and created giant evil men. Right? Amen. Go, go in God's grace, right? How do we, how do we apply that to our life today? 
How do we gain any meaningful application from learning about this reality? How would you live any differently with this information? And one more challenge I'll mention. Uh, Passages like this that teach about an unseen spiritual reality, about unseen spiritual beings and the power that they wield, uh, frankly seems kind of crazy to the world. And, And it's hard for us, people who are grounded in reality for the most part, limiting our range of experience to our five senses. Uh, It's hard to accept passages like this and and to not kind of raise an eyebrow. Uh, So let's get into the text. I'll read it and we'll make comments along the way and I'll bring some application here toward the end. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Father, as we approach your text today, we acknowledge that this is your word. This is... Breathed out by the Holy Spirit and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Uh, and we don't dismiss your word. We don't skip over hard passages. So we ask that you would teach us, uh, that you would give us discernment and wisdom as we approach this text. And most importantly, we pray that you would help us to see how this passage fits into the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and how does it inform us in how we may live godly lives today, but also how shall we prepare for the future coming judgment. We pray that you would use today's message for your glory, for your majesty, and for our upbuilding. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, this may be one of the strangest sermons you'll ever hear, (laughs) not because I plan on preaching a strange sermon, uh, but just because it's a a bizarre text, and I have my work cut out for me. It's important for me, it's important for you uh, to know that um, a lot of the material that I'm presenting, um, I don't come up with this on my own. I I lean heavily on sources and on commentaries and, and, and other people who are way smarter than I am who have studied this for years and years and years. Uh, This goes without saying, by the way, for every sermon I preach, and I often have a bibliography, and and so if you ever want to know what I'm reading and who I'm getting this information from, that is uh, public information that I would be more than happy to share with you. 
But this text presents to us a truth that we have to grapple with. And that truth, not just presented in this text, but throughout the Bible, and that truth is that there is an unseen reality. There is a spirit world that we don't fully understand. It's a world of created beings, non-human, that coexist on a plane that we can't always experience with our five senses. We do, however, see in Scripture a crossover, a time when this unseen reality of these created beings uh, interact with humanity. You've read the verse, Hebrews 13.2 tells us that uh, we should not... um, we should not forget to show hospitality because by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. We don't just need that one verse to, to know as people who have read and studied Scripture that throughout the Bible, angels and these spirit beings have interacted with people uh, from the very beginning. Uh, you can open your Bible almost anywhere and see evidence that this unseen spiritual reality interacts with humanity from time to time, and it fits within God's created purpose. God saw fit to reveal this to Moses, this passage, with just these few slight details, and to the children of Israel so that they could prepare to go into the promised land. And you'll remember Moses sent spies into the promised land, and as they walked through it, they came back with this report that there were giants in the land, and we seemed like grasshoppers to them. And so 10 of the 12 spies gave a bad report and said, we can't go up because of these giants. That's this Nephilim idea that were on the earth afterward. You hear them in a number of different ways in Scripture, the Anakim, the Rephaim, uh, Og of Bashan, who had a bed that was 12 cubits long and 9 cubits wide. You see all this stuff in Scripture, and these passages can be confusing to us. But according to our passage, these created spirit beings engaged in sexual behavior with human women And the result was a mixed hybrid race of evil, violent giants. I mean, there it is. That's the passage that's presented to us, and now it's up to us to wrestle with this. Why did God tell Moses to record this? Well, because they were about to go into a land that was inhabited with these people who engaged in this practice with demons. And the people that Israel would displace from the land intentionally, actively sought out demons to possess their bodies, and the desired result was to create this hybrid race of half-demon, half-human people who were described as giants or heroes of old or men of renown or violent, sexual, evil men like Nimrod and others who contributed to a violent, wicked, evil society. The spies saw these giants, as I mentioned before. And and listen, this is not just something that we read about in the Bible. Archaeologists and newspaper accounts from all over the world show evidence of these giants, both in bones and tools and in archaeological dig sites and in formations and rocks and in other places. This is not just a biblical presentation of reality. This is uh, observable in the natural world as well. But we see in this passage that these evil beings contributed to the conditions whereby God decided to scrap all of creation. 
to flood the world and to destroy everything except for these eight people and the chosen animals that God would bring into the ark. The conditions that led up to the flood are recorded right here in this passage. Verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That depicts total depravity. There's nothing about that that is redeemable in the way it is described to us. So bad that verse 6 says, The Lord regretted that He made man. It grieved Him to His heart. He was sorry that He made man. And he determines to blot out man and creeping things and animals and birds because of his sorrow. Before we get back into the text, let me just give you a couple of warnings. Maybe said best by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where uh, uh, Uncle Demon is telling his nephew Demon about how they should approach humanity how in which there's sharing techniques and tactics by which they can trip us up. And and the demon Wormwood tells his nephew of two favorable extremes. One is, make men deny all existence of the supernatural spirit realm. Or the second, make men and women infatuated with the supernatural spirit realm. There is, of course... A temptation as we approach this passage, and I've seen it in a, a number of commentaries. One is to sterilize this text and leave out anything supernatural and just tidy up the language and make it seem like this is all just um, human beings and there are no angelic uh, interactions here. Uh, a second temptation that others have fallen into is to sensationalize this text and to give yourself full reign to dive headlong into every myth and fantasy and legend and, and to really go overboard in that way, wherever human imagination might take us. But of course, I think there is a biblical middle road, one that doesn't strip the text of its mystery and miracle and supernatural reality, but also one that doesn't go overboard, throwing out all doctrine, all sound theology, and all reality that grounds us to our present day. The Bible doesn't just acknowledge, but it asserts that there is a spiritual reality that we don't see. You can't read the Gospels, you can't read the Bible, you can't be a faithful student of the Word and not acknowledge the reality of a supernatural, unseen reality, which consists of not just spirit beings, but different levels of spirit beings. We worship one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But you also see in Scripture places like Psalm 82 and Revelation and Ezekiel and other places where um, God creates other beings. You might recognize some of this terminology. uh, The sons of God the divine assembly, the divine elders, the morning stars, the cherubim, the seraphim, the angels, the demons, the adversary, Satan. Paul wrote, we preached a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 6, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In all this way, the Bible presents a reality that there are, you know, I guess to say it simply, we're just not alone. There is a, there are real beings that are at work in a realm that we can't understand. So to help us make sense of this, Genesis six one through eight 
presents to us some things that we need to grapple with. And so let's get back into the text and find out who these sons of God were. Back in verse 1, it says, When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. Uh, That verse just depicts natural family building. Life is going on as normal. There's nothing spectacular here. People are multiplying. People are expanding. I think it's in Matthew 12. Jesus says, just like in the days of Noah, when people were marrying and drinking and eating and basically depicting just a very regular, normal life, um, that up until the flood, people were just living a normal life to some degree. And and so this is what happens as men and women begin to multiply and fill the earth to the population it was. But what happens as this happens, as this expansion of the earth and filling of it and the multiplication takes place? Look at verses 2 and also verse 4. The text says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. In verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. It's very clear what the text is describing. This is a family-oriented worship service, and so we just keep this uh, in biblical language here. He says that these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now many people have presented what's called the Sethite view, right? Here's the Sethite view. I'll just present it. I'll present two views, and then you can discern um, based on the text, based on the scriptures, what which view that you think is correct. The Sethite view sees that the sons of God are the godly offspring of Seth that we just learned about in Genesis five. Uh, compared to the ungodly line of Cain that we learned about in Genesis 4. And that these two lines that were presented in Genesis 4 and 5, the sons of God are the offspring of Seth, and they intermarry with this ungodly line of daughters from Cain. And many people present that. Uh, It is a a, a human approach to this text that... uh, scrubs any sort of supernatural or angelic or demonic realm here. Is that view correct? Well, a hermeneutical principle tells us that Scripture must be checked with Scripture and that we, we look in the broader context of all the Bible. And the problem with that view is that the term sons of God never, ever refers to people. Who are the sons of God? We see them in Job. If you want to flip over in your Bible to the book of Job. Um, Job comes right before... Psalms. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. So if you go one book before, we see in Job chapter 1... In Job chapter 1, verse 6, we've already learned about a guy named Job. He has a lot of stuff. He's blessed. He's wealthy. He's got uh, lots. 
And so in verse 6 of Job chapter 1, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then we get into this conversation about Job between Satan and God. Sons of God presenting themselves before God. Flip over to Job chapter 2, and we see it again in verses 1 through 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the conversation goes on. In Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, Uh, This is well into the book of Job when God is answering Job and Job has presented his case to God and and God begins to answer. And in God's answer in Job 38, 4 through 7, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. We see in the book of Job, and and there are other places in Scripture that describe these sons of God, that they are pre-human created beings in the order of created beings under God's sovereignty and authority and rulership uh, and in such a way, they govern uh, it as a way that maybe God has delegated authority to them. We'll see that in the Tower of Babel, when God dispossesses all the human race except for one family line of Shem, the Shemites, the Semites, uh, the Hebrews from Eber. This is uh, when God says, I will rule over this people And all these other nations are given to other gods. You see that in Acts 17 when Paul in the Areopagus says that uh, up until this time, God has allowed you to go your own way and to follow these other gods. This all hints to this phrase, the sons of God, who were these created beings, not gods, but created beings that God allowed to have leadership and rulership, one of them being Satan. Why would they seek to break into humanity in this way? The text doesn't specifically tell us, but there are a couple of suggestions. One is that in Genesis 3, uh, God promised that born of the seed of woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so one possibility is that this demonic line of people would come in order to eradicate any of the godly line so that the seed that would crush the serpent's head would never be born. You see that maybe in Revelation 12, where the dragon waits to sweep up the woman and her child, uh, and he sweeps down a third of the angels with him. This is all complicated, and it's hard to find a clear reason. But another possibility is that Why would these demons cohabitate with women to create this line? 
possibly for power, to rule in an authoritative, violent way, to have their way in all the earth, and possibly to obtain um, access to the tree of life and get around the curse of God to live forever. We don't know. But those are some possibilities. We also know that their goal was, as Satan presented to Adam and Eve in the garden, was that they could be like God. Knowing good and evil. And that they wouldn't have to live under the authority and under the leadership of God at all, but they could be their own gods. This could have possibly be their motivation. And we can see this in three other New Testament passages because it's not just the Job verses that tell us who these sons of God were. Flip over to 1 Peter, all the way at the other end of your Bible. You have uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And the book right before Revelation is Jude. And we're going to cover a verse in that in just a minute. And then a few verses before Jude, a few books before Jude, uh, you have the epistles uh, from Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, we have some insight into uh, what, was, what was happening here. What did Peter believe about the sons of God? What did Jude, the brother of Jesus, uh, believe about these sons of God? Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, after Christ died in the flesh, heart stopped beating, body um, stopped functioning, Jesus died physically on the cross. But His Spirit remained alive, of course. And what did He do? Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When? When did this happen? Right here. And when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now flip over to 2 Peter chapter um, 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And Peter gives us more insight into who the sons of God were, the Nephilim and all that in Genesis 6. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then it goes into Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, and it says that God knows how to rescue godly people. Skip down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of punishment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. That's the clue. What did these angels do? Why are they in prison? Why are they kept in chains of gloomy darkness? Why did Jesus go and proclaim victory upon His death and His Spirit to these angels? 
because they indulged in the lust of defiling passion and despised authority. Flip over to Jude, and this is our last verse in the New Testament that we'll look at for this section. In Jude, right before Revelation, uh, it's only one chapter, verse 6, Jude 6-8 through says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So let's go back to Genesis 6. There is no other way to biblically interpret who the sons of God are. You have to, in my opinion, I'm, I'm persuaded by many commentators, uh, uh, John MacArthur and others, uh, Kent Hughes, and many others. Books that I've read, uh, Michael Heiser, uh, a number of others present this view and show us that linguistically, you have to do some gymnastics to say that the sons of God were from the Sethite line. So that's how I land, but, but you're, you're not a bad person, or it doesn't mean your Christianity is forfeited if you take the Sethite line. There's plenty of people. Uh, Warren Wearsby is another one who presents that as a, a possible solution. Many others do too. I'm just trying to present to you both sides. I personally come down on the side that these were angelic, and I think the weight of the New Testament evidence um, and the Job passage, I think all of that... Can you see why this is a hard passage to preach, right? I'm laboring here with all these technicalities, trying to hedge all this because I, I want to get it right and I want to present it to you in a faithful way that doesn't bring confusion. It's confusing enough as it is. So let's answer another question. How do these fallen demonic angels, how do they procreate and produce offspring? Well, we have no real clear explanation, but there are some hints in the text here that we can assume that human men sought out these demonic spirits and offered their bodies for them to inhabit. Man is mentioned nine times in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. God's problem is with men. My spirit shall not contend with men forever. His days shall be 120 years, meaning that they had 120 years before the flood came. All right. Some people used to think that this meant that men uh, were limited in their age to 120 years. That is a, another possible interpretation. But, but for 120 years, this worldwide population uh, that were pursuing demonic inhabitation, they had 120 years before their judgment day. But how do they do it? We have no real clear explanation, but men were responsible Men rejected God and men sought out union with these demons so that their offspring would be this giant race of people who could possibly gain access to the tree of life and live forever. That's one theory. Now listen, you might think this is too difficult to believe, but we, we believe that Jesus took on flesh 
I don't know if there's like a body closet in heaven somewhere and they just say, I want a 42 large and, you know, make it about six feet or, uh, you know, seven feet or whatever, or, or if they took on a man. But you see this all over scripture. I mean, G- um, Jacob wrestled with a man who wrenched his socket out of him. That's not a spiritual language. Um, th- these are real people. Um, Angels really interact with people and take on. Jesus' ministry is filled with people who are demon-possessed, right? And they're like superhuman. Remember the demoniac who they chained in a cemetery? And it says he often broke the chains and no, no one could subdue him. And he cut himself and he lived in this sort of horrible existence. Or remember in Acts, the seven sons of Sceva, this Jewish high priest, and his sons would go and they would try to cast out demons. But in this one particular place... Uh, this one demon overpowers all seven of them and he, he beats them all seven and, and leaves them bleeding and naked running out of the house. Or you see this other demon that possesses the girl in Philippi and she's a spirit uh, fortune teller. Listen, these, these, demon, uh, these demons inhabit humans and create something different in their DNA and their makeup and their ability They have some sort of superhuman strength compounded by a level of evil and wickedness. And verse 3 says, As a result of this, my spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God said, I'm not going to put up with this. And so he imprisoned those spirits who crossed over, and then these spirits did it again after the flood, because in verse uh, six, it says, or I'm sorry, in verse uh, five, it says, I'm sorry, in verse four, it says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, but also afterward. You remember when Jesus went to the demoniac, he said, the spirit cried out. Jesus said, what is your name? He said, Legion. And he said, have you come to destroy us? It's not time. And he begged Jesus to send him not into the abyss, but into the pigs. This was an example of this sort of inhabitation crossover that would have been punishment for these angels, fallen angels, who would have been sent down into this gloomy prison that Jesus proclaimed victory over. What happens? Let's move on to uh, verse five and I'm sorry, verse six and seven. We, we'll call this section "Divine Grief and Judgment." Divine Grief and Judgment. First one was human depravity. Human degeneration. The second one is this divine grief and judgment. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. Some versions might say He repented or He was grieved that He made them. This, This affected God deeply. And we see this in stark contrast to Genesis 1, where after every day of creation, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And on the sixth day, He creates every, you know, Adam and Eve, and He says, it's very good. And so for God to make that positive pronouncement on creation, only to get here 1,600 years later and say that He regretted that He did everything. Listen, God can't regret and God can't. Um, repent as though he made a mistake. This is getting more into the heart of God that he is grieved. And I think we get this. What do you do when you watch a dateline and you see some evil, horrible situation? Your heart breaks. 
or you see some terrible story of abuse or some terrible situation in our culture or around the world of some terrible evil that's taken place, it, it grieves us. And this passage shows us that this great evil that filled the entire earth grieved God to His heart. It shows us something about God. That He is not some robotic, emotionless, cold, calculating, and uncaring Creator. And you see it in Jesus when Lazarus died. You remember Jesus saw everyone crying and saw the women and saw them mourning and, and it touched Him. He knew what He was going to do, but he, he says He wept. Jesus was touched by the death of Lazarus. And I, for one, am grateful to know that God is not a cold, uncaring God, but one who grieves and hurts and is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He expresses sadness and grief over creation and over those who bear His image. And so then comes the idea of judgment. God pronounces His plan. And we're left to assume that this is the nuclear option, the only option left. That because when we see evil in the world today, we'll see you know, a Hitler and a, uh, we'll see... Uh, terrible things uh, like what took place in uh, Southeast Asia uh, by I think Paul Pot. Uh, we see all these incredibly evil, wicked dictators and rulers who create such horrible atrocities. They'll rise up from time to time to do this. But imagine a whole world filled with that. Imagine a whole world where every person you locked eyes with had a story of how evil had touched them and their family or they were perpetrating evil. The only remedy, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land and the animals and the creeping things and the birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. Divine judgment is coming and they have 120 years. It gives Noah 120 years to build an ark, to gather supplies and to put it all together. And that brings us to the third point, which is verse 8. Not only do we see human depravity and degeneration, not only do we see divine grief and judgment, but we also see divine grace. And this is such an important point that brings us some hope here. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of such horrible wickedness and evil around the planet, one man finds favor. And it was hinted at in, uh, in, in <clears throat> chapter 5 when Lamech fathered Noah. In verse 29, he called his name Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah becomes a type of Savior. He becomes a Christ-like figure, a shadow of Jesus before Jesus came to the earth. Noah becomes this a person who delivers his family out of the waters of judgment into a new life. How does Noah find favor? Well, as we learned last week, when we considered Enoch, favor comes from God by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we see that Noah, by faith, 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? By faith. Genesis 15.6, when Abraham, God promised him all these things, he says he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. We read about Enoch last week, that Enoch proclaimed this message of righteousness and he did it by faith and it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. How did Noah please God? He did it by faith. He did it in the same way that you and I receive salvation, by grace through faith. Noah was pleasing to God, and he found favor in his eyes, not because he had his own self-righteousness, but because he believed. Kent Hughes says this about Noah. He says, it was all grace. Noah had responded like Enoch to the grace of God, and the scriptures say that he, like Enoch, walked with God. That's in verse 9. Noah walked with God. Like Enoch, he walked in deepest intimacy and obedience with God. Noah knew God. But had he been left to himself, depending on his own righteousness, Noah would be a wretch like the rest of us. He was not saved by his own righteousness. He was saved by grace. And we're going to pick up with Noah next week and his preparation for the flood and the work that God does. And I'll try to get all the way through chapter 7. But how can we conclude this? What, What can you do with this information today? Uh, Number one, I would say this, adopt a biblical point of view when it comes to these non-human created spirit beings. And I can't believe I'm about to say what I'm going to (laughs) say. I mean, it really is stupid. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I mean, you can't read the news today without hearing about UFOs and alien life. How are we supposed to make sense of all this? We can see this, that God has created other beings, and it's right here in this biblical worldview. You think about Ezekiel, and he he sees this glowing, multi-wheeled, flashing light, angelic thing with multiple... Read the Bible, and you can see some strange things in there that could fit with current events. Now listen, I I don't want to get into some of this. This is a fire pit or a barbecue conversation, if you ever want that, right? The guns are loaded. I can share all kinds of information with you. My opinion doesn't matter, but but how can this apply? You need to see current events through a biblical lens, and that is that all beings are created by a Creator, and He is sovereignly ruling over all things. We read in Thessalonians that there will be a great delusion that will come at the end times, that God will send the delusion. This could be what we're seeing in our um, our current events. But ultimately, you need to know that whatever beings are being discovered, they are created by a God and they serve His purpose, even if they're in rebellion to Him. Two, I'm moving off that point, all right? <laughs> Take a biblical worldview when it comes to filtering current events through. Are there UFOs? I didn't say that. Don't walk out of here saying, my pastor preached on UFOs this morning. Not a one of you should say that, all right? Uh, I just said adopt a biblical point of view when it comes to non-human created spirit beings. Number two, praise God for His grace. 
Praise God for His grace. Even in the worst of times, even with the worst of humanity, we can always see evidence of God's grace. You think of any atrocity, any terrible event that took place, and you can see also the evidence of God at work in the midst of that. Take the Holocaust, take any terrible experience, any horrible situation in the world, and you will see evidence that God is at work saving, protecting, and redeeming, and and renewing people. Praise Him for His grace. He has not abandoned humanity. He said He'll never again flood the earth. And that is an act of grace. And then the third thing, understand that Jesus has won the victory. Jesus went and proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison. We read about in Peter and Jude. He demonstrated power and authority over evil spirits throughout his entire public ministry, didn't he? Satan entered Judas and and he betrayed Jesus, handing him over to be crucified, and that seemed like a sure victory for Satan. Surely all of the fallen angels celebrated at Jesus' death on the cross, only for Jesus to show up in his spirit and proclaim victory moments later. Believer, if you are in Christ, demons have no real power over you. They can influence. They have power over the world, over our government, over our systems, but only as God allows for His good purposes. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. If you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are possessed by His Spirit and no other. We can see their activity as God allows, right? Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, God sent a spirit of Satan to torment me, a thorn in my flesh, and yet it served God's good purpose in Paul's life. And he was not overcome by that, but it produced in him faith and perseverance and endurance and weakness that made Christ even stronger. Unbelievers, on the other hand, can be possessed, influenced, deceived, blinded, corrupted, and experience tremendous influence from spiritual powers. But if you're in Christ, one of the many blessings of being saved is that you, by way of Christ's victory, have victory over that. That's why we sing songs like, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming love. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. We sing songs like in Christ alone, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's cursed has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No power of hell, No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Or maybe one more because I found so many and it's hard for me to limit them. We sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but his own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown in the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. It's his glories now we sing who died and rose on high. 
who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. You see why we sing these songs? Why they stir up something within us? Because if you're in Christ, you're as good as being in the ark. You're as good as being in the the ark of safety that is delivered through the judgment waters that would come upon the earth. Just be encouraged by these two verses. Colossians 1, 13-14 He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that good news? You're not susceptible to Nephilim and demonic powers and they don't have any victory over you. If you're in Christ Jesus, He has purchased the victory and proclaimed it. Ephesians 1, 15 starts, Paul is making this prayer. He's giving thanks to them and he says, My prayer is that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, where far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all those things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You know what that means? If you're in Christ, if you're in the church, you're as good as being in the ark, protected from all judgment and all powers and all dominions and all authorities. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our sins made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the good news, believer. And this is a reason for you to worship. Even in light of what Weird things we read about in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Father, we worship you for the fact that we have, in Christ, been given victory. And all the evil and all the wickedness and all the darkness and all the terrible things that take place in our world today, we thank you that in Christ Jesus we have a shield, we have a refuge, we have a place of safety under your wings, and that you grant us protection. We worship you for that. We thank you for the victory that we have over darkness and over evil. But that also means that we have a message to proclaim. That there are many people, many people who need to hear this message of hope and victory and redemption and safety. We pray, God, that you would uh, not just allow us to hoard this good news, but that we would proclaim it as we should. That we would, with every... uh, Last breath in our lungs, proclaim salvation in Christ Jesus, declaring the victory that he won on the cross. For us, it's a means of worship. It's a reason to thank you that you've protected us and that you save us, that you are a God of justice who punishes the guilty and the wicked, that you will store them until the day of judgment. We thank you for all that we learn about you in this passage. We pray that today as we leave from here, that you would apply this message to our hearts that we may know what to do with this information. Use it for your glory. And we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.